Developer conference season is upon us, and many are coming back in person for the first time since the pandemic, which means we can expect a return of showmanship, live demos that almost never go perfectly, big promises, and thinly veiled shade thrown at the competition. During the keynote presentation at Google I.O. this week, Google CEO Sundar Pichai seemed to be really beating one particular drum, AI, of course, but responsible AI. He repeatedly pointed out that Google has been in the AI business for years, but suggests that they might appear to be moving slower than others because of all of that responsibility. Unlike some others, and yes, he means Bing, they're taking their time ensuring safety precautions are in place for their generative AI when it goes live. Never mind that Jeffrey Hinton, the godfather of AI and a former Google employee, just quit very publicly, saying he regrets his life's work and what they're releasing upon the world. While there was a lot of talk about the AI-powered features and products Google is rolling out and how they probably definitely won't instruct your 14-year-old how to make mustard gas, there were a good deal of hardware announcements too. But even these had a healthy dose of AI seasoning sprinkled on top. I'm Daryl Etherington, and this is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we talk about the top stories in tech with the people who cover them. Today, we're talking to Brian Heater about what you Google Pixel heads have to look forward to this year. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Uh, you know, nothing. Just taking it easy this Wednesday afternoon. It's a normal Wednesday. Well, yeah, we're recording this on Wednesday, listeners. You're hearing this on Friday, but today... As we're recording this is Google I.O. keynote day. The keynote has happened. The developer keynote has happened. And then Brian has also gone and experienced all of the things, <laughs> right? Yeah, I experienced some of the things uh, weeks ago at Google's offices mm-hmm. in New York. And then I experienced one very large thing about uh, 20 minutes ago. I don't want to spoil right. it. I don't, well, we you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's leave that as the tease. Okay. I was just so, going to say, I already like, ruined the illusion of time at the top of the show, so I don't <laughs> want to destroy this podcast anymore. Uh, yeah, so there was something big, and we'll talk about that. But so much to talk about at I.O. I think so much more than we have time to talk about. But what are some of the highline kind of items? What was Google all about this time around? I mean, I think there's one headline example that we can point to, but what was your impression from being there in person? Yeah, so we talked about effectively what Google needed to prove at this event. And I would say it's basically that it is caught up and hopefully in some cases actually gone beyond some of the competition. Something pretty wild happened a while back that I don't think anybody on staff expected, which is people were talking about Bing for a good couple of weeks because Microsoft was really ahead of all of this GPT stuff. People were effectively wondering where Google's with all this, because obviously Google has this long history with AI. They're you know, really good at integrating into its software and they had announced BARD and been pretty silent about it. So this was their opportunity to really show effectively two things. One, the underlying technology that they've been working on that, that's powering a lot of stuff, which is Palm 2. And then two, I would say that the key word from really both keynotes is integration really showing right. you know, all, the, all these years that they spent developing all of these different models, like how that's going to play into all of the various pieces of Google software we only use. Right. Yeah, you could tell that they emphasized AI right away and they were in conversation with some of the stuff that has been going on, like you're talking about in terms of like, how are we positioning ourselves relative to the competition without ever calling out the competition? Like they wouldn't do that, especially as they consider themselves sort of leaders in the search space. But the Bing thing really clearly had an impact, right? Like it's essentially the first time that anyone's ever even been talking about another search engine as a going concern. We've talked about Bing in the past, but as a punchline, essentially, not as anything else beyond that. But 
One of the things I noticed while watching this was that Sundar seemed to repeatedly talk about how Google has been an AI company for so long. And obviously, AI is one of their core concerns. Sort of to frame it as like, we've been doing this for a really long time. We're not new to it. And yes, you're hearing a lot about our competitors right now. But guess what? We've been here too. And we're before them. And the other thing was responsibility. He kept talking about responsible use of AI, which seemed as a like a dig at everyone else being included as like they're doing something irresponsible in the way that they're rolling this out. The reason we are maybe appear to be lagging them is that we're responsible. Yeah, I'm going to plug my newsletter, which will have gone up the day before, but I spoke to uh, Joanna Bryson, Professor Joanna Bryson, earlier this week, mm-hmm. and she's somebody who's been working on ethical AI for decades and decades now. So we, we had a good conversation about that. These are all obviously really important things and things that these companies need to be baking into, effectively baking into the models that all of these things are trained on. And obviously, Google's right. You know, they have been in the AI game for a long time. But the difference is, obviously, development is a linear progression to a certain extent. But in terms of public perception of AI, GPT and generative AI have just completely blown the doors off of everything. Yeah. You know, every few years, people will talk about AI and all of the good and bad things around it. But I don't know about you, but this is the first time that like ants are calling me up and asking me like what's going on. Because now you can sit in front of your computer and you can type words into a search fields and create a, however you feel about it, you know, from an artistic perspective, you can create a picture or, you know, you can, yeah. you can get it to write you a short story in the language of Shakespeare. So it's really an entirely new paradigm of AI that we're talking about. It's different than just having Gmail complete your sentences for you. Right. Basically what it was before was like intelligence suggestions based on contextual clues where it was like, oh, like I kind of know you're in this part of New York and you probably want to think about lunch right now and whatever. And we'll like surface some suggestions for that. Whereas this is like you said, is like creating stuff that's totally new based on just a few suggestions that you provide. Right. So it's a very different picture, a very different beast. And I think Google is trying to link its tradition in the one to its expertise in this. And that is maybe a different difficult bridge to build. But I did want to say, as Maggie has pointed out, our producer, that newsletter, in case you are not subscribed already, is Actuator. First of all, how dare you? (laughs) Okay, continue, (laughs) Daryl. Yes, how dare you not be signed up already, but please go sign up for that. And you wouldn't receive the one that you just referenced. Go to the website and you can find that one posted. (laughs) Well, I mean, just carrying on from what you were talking about, um, Mm -hmm. contextual stuff is still incredibly important and it was still like very much a through line in all of this. What's interesting as far as the generative AI stuff goes is I think there's a lot of working backwards. Obviously, they've been developing this really impressive technology for a long time and now they're sort of trying to figure out how that works into existing products. Some things are inherent, some things make sense, some things feel like they're kind of being shoehorned into a certain extent. Like one thing I saw, it's a you know silly little thing, but it jumped out at me is like, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense as they're doing. Uh, Imogen is the name of the model that they're using to generate art. And they're basically doing wallpaper. So you can like type in a few words and get like a custom wallpaper on Android. Like that, yeah. you know, it's not a huge feature, but that's a feature that makes a lot of sense on the basis. Yeah, it does. And it, I think that matches up with user behavior really well and probably is born out of that, right? Google, they also emphasize repeatedly. And, you know, I think it was a little bit mystifying to me. But then when you see how people use their phones, it like makes a lot of sense. Like they emphasize the customizability of Android. And it is one distinguishing feature versus iOS that's significant, right? But then you see that people really do love to like do 
whatever crazy shit to their phones. Like they like to change all the font to Comic Sans or whatever. Like people just love doing that stuff. So, but like, I'm sure people are searching for this stuff all the time, like wallpaper, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And Google just saw, like has access to that and see like, this is what people want. Like, and then they will go and mash it up themselves in like whatever hokey way they can find. But if your phone will just do it, like that's going to be a huge unlock for them in terms of a certain group of users. Yeah, it goes beyond that too. I mean, this is actually something that's just occurring to me as we're talking right now, but that's an onboard. And, you know, in terms of like right now, the onboarding process for a lot of stuff is like you go to Bing and try it out for the first time. This is, oh, here's a feature that's built into it. And you put in a few words, it spits something out. And like all of a sudden you've had that experience and you've had that experience in something that you're already using in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, the big exposure is, I think, doing what you're talking about where like your aunt is calling you up, right? Like it's getting it to a level of attention that is way beyond what we've seen before. And this stand is ready to do even more there, right? So I think that's cool. Because to me, I had a sort of an uninformed impression that Pixel hardware felt a little bit like ignore or like i don't know like it just felt like it was not a priority or something but what they brought up on stage was that it's actually like it seems to be selling in higher numbers than ever before in the markets where they do currently offer it i think they said something along those lines it is but that more has to do with how much it was selling before which is which is not a lot Mm. you know and it struggled the pixel line specifically really struggled up until i would say about the six and the one thing that really pulled them out of that and a lot of people forget this there was a an earnings call and they were talking about basically like how poorly they're selling. And then the next quarter, all of a sudden they're selling really well. And what it was, it was a Pixel 4a came. Right. And they've got this at the time, like 400 or $450 device. So, so the one you're talking about this entirely different segment of the market, the pixels themselves are already fairly cheap as far as premium flagships go. And then beyond that, you're talking about a lot of markets that they haven't been able to penetrate before. The numbers aren't great in India right now, but they're going aggressively after it. India is the number two smartphone market in the world right now. And something like that makes a lot of sense. So things are moving in the right direction. And just as an aside, this funny thing happened where Wear OS's market share like shot up. It was at about 2%. And then within a week, it was at 17%. And that was because of the Samsung deal. Right. All of a sudden, they got this partnership with Samsung. Samsung, they finally digitize in and are using Wear OS on the devices. And so maybe they've got this huge market share. So like things are trending for sure in the right direction. But this isn't nothing that we saw today is going to be a game changer. Exactly. I mean, they did reveal the 7A today, right? And they did. like you're saying, in that A series, it seems like every iteration is an even better deal than the last. Like this seems like a really great phone for five ninety nine, but is it not as good? Is it more expensive? Well, it's no, yeah, it's more expensive. Ah. So it's four ninety nine, ah, okay. but it, it's up fifty. Oh right, I'm thinking a Canadian. Sorry, everybody. That's not- yeah, sorry. <laughs> you know, it's so it's it's fifty dollars more than the last one. It's like it's still an incredible deal as far as those go. Like even the Pixel, you can make a pretty good argument that like the Pixels. Set, like seven itself yeah, is flagship. Really cool. yeah yeah <laughs> they're on a six-month cycle so in the fall they, they announced a new flagship and with that becomes a new tensor chip and like a lot of the camera stuff one thing that i think gets lost in a lot of the conversations around the pixel stuff or all the exclusive software they have a lot of that is is the camera stuff and I, honestly aside from pricing i think that that is the most compelling thing yeah these are things that like eventually are going to make their way in some cases to other android devices but a lot of them are like entirely reliance on first-party Google Silicon. Yeah, I think that is the biggest one. I think the other one that is probably more niche, but specifically quite interesting to me is like the real-time transcription and on-device translation stuff that they do, which is also powered yeah. by Tensor. But yeah, I, I'm glad they're still investing there and I'm glad they're doing a job. But it was all to tie back, like as that 
continues to grow, if it does continue to grow, which it seems like they're putting a lot of money into making sure it does, like that is people's first exposure to generative AI. And a growing number of people's first exposure to generative AI is going to be just sort of booting up their phone and like playing with stuff, like trying to make their own wallpapers, but then also doing the photo editing stuff. The photo editing stuff was, I think there's a lot yet to be said about it because it's going a step further than I think maybe some people realize. Like there's been a lot in computational photography over the past many years in terms of like it producing stuff based on scant evidence and then like actually having to produce additional things. But like there was the moon controversy with Samsung earlier this year where Samsung was essentially like supplanting really pixelated photos of a moon for like a great photo of the moon based on where you are in the world at that time and what the moon would look like during that season. But like the demo was a balloon, a kid with a bunch of balloons and they like moved him to the right to more to the center of the frame. And it generated a bunch of information that was not there previously. That was like the other half of the bundle of balloons, the sky behind it, a bunch of other stuff. So it was net creating new things. So how did you feel about that part of it? What do you think the reaction is going to be for that kind of feature? So I haven't tried that one specifically, but I, you know, I've tried Magic Erase, obviously, mm-hmm. that goes back a couple of generations. Those error features are like face and blur. They're really incredible. I don't know. Do you have a pixel or have you tried them? I haven't. Yeah, I've tried the Magic Erase features yeah. just through Google Photos, but uh, not on the current gen hardware or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that does make you shit. So it, like, if you try it, you know that like it's a really, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's really impressive. Yeah, super impressive. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters, I think. Because like, listen, like we're on this call right now. I've got this fake blur behind me because I'm at this event, you know, and, and if you use portrait mode on any of your devices, it's, it's creating a fake bokeh. Yeah. It's all like digital trickery. And that's just, that's basically something that you have to accept. The moon thing, maybe, I guess, I understand why that's a bridge too far for people. But basically... If it works, and if your family members who don't really care about their phones and don't know anything about AI start using it, then it's then it's a home run. I yeah. mean, it's at the end of the day, it's a huge differentiator. And listen, like the only way that any device makers are able to differentiate themselves right now is through imaging. And Google has been really good on. They tried to lean entirely on the computational photography thing a few years ago, and realized you know they actually had to build good hardware around it as well. But they they've gotten really good. And I think the Pixel camera experience is, you know, pretty close to one of the best or maybe the best camera experiences you'll get on a device. Yeah, absolutely. And these things pack into it because to your point, it's all one and the same to the end user, right? Like it's like I took this picture with my phone and then my phone also let me like move my kid over and put them in the center of the frame and make it look like I wanted it to look. And that's the end of the thought about it, right? There's no thought about like, well, it did generate a whole bunch of like new data that wasn't there previously. Like it's like, nope, this is what I wanted. This looks nice for me to share with my family. End of story, right? Which could be a huge differentiator for them going forward forward as they continue to invest in this area. I do want to talk about where you just came from, too. Oh, yeah. Tease. <laughs> but yeah. The big reveal. We, well, we, we got it. We can't leave the audience hanging. I mean, well, maybe no. they just keep coming back, hoping Brian will return and talk about what it was you did. <laughs> Every week. Push it back. Uh, yeah, no, I just came from a Project Starline demo, like I think about a 200 feet away from here. If you don't know, so this was announced initially in 2001. At the end of last year, they did the first demos, and it's basically, it's a teleconferencing system that makes it look like you're in the room with somebody. It's basically like a holographic system. The older version that they had, I never actually saw it in person, and unfortunately, wasn't able to test it out at any point, but it's basically like the size of a, like a, a booth in a diner. Yeah. This one is basically like, it's a flat screen TV, and... They were able to bring the, the size down considerably because there's just there's just less hardware on it. There are less sensors and less cameras. Before they were using 
all of these different cameras to basically get different angles of view and build a 3D model based on that. Now they say a few, so whatever a few means. So I assume a few is three generally. Mm. So, you know, a few cameras and taking these shots of you and then using AI and machine learning to build a 3D model of you. Right. So rather than having, it's another case of like, instead of actually using hardware to capture the real data, they're inferring the data and then presenting that instead. And it's just as good for the end purpose, I guess. Yeah. It's a neat experience. It's very impressive what they're able to do with it. They've got a few customers out there. So they've been trying this at uh, Translate WeWork, T-Mobile, and Salesforce. Okay. So they've, they've been trying it a while. And, you know, it's basically like, this is like the pandemic product, right? This is like, we're all... The way we work has changed. We're all working remotely right now. And and you do, like, it takes a little while for your, your eyes and your body to adjust to it. But at a certain point, you do start to feel like you're actually talking to somebody in the same huh. room as you. The question is, like, what's the value add there? Obviously, it's nice. You know, we all like to have these meetings in person, but they haven't talked about timeline. They haven't talked about price. We can assume that this thing is going to be, like, so prohibitively expensive. Right, yeah. So maybe, you know, like, we, we work for a big corporation, so maybe you'll go into the Yahoo offices in, in like, New York and be like one that you can use to meet with people or we work obviously since they're a partner but that's kind of the only really real world use i could see right now until they can bring the price down considerably whatever that price is right yeah it seems like the value prop is like a hard one it's hard to build a business case for this particular thing probably at the moment but what was the actual experience like of using it was it really impressive did you come away with kind of a wow factor or were you kind of like uncanny valley-ish or what yeah, definitely a little bit of the uncanny valley. I was describing it. It was me and a Google rep, and we were talking about the thing as we were meeting. And I referred to it as like jittering. And he, you know, he said it was basically artifacts. And these are artifacts from how it generates a 3D image. And there's just this weird sort of effect where it just seems like certain parts of the body are like vibrating. As you're looking at them, that takes a little bit of getting used to. It's a neat experience. It's neat in the way that, like, I don't know, like you would go to like it on a Disney ride. And like yeah. that, that was a neat experience, but I don't know if I necessarily like need all of my Zoom calls to be like that. <laughs> yeah, your weekly one on ones uh, should be like a Disney theme park. <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, uh, given the option, absolutely. If I could get on one of those little, little Tron bikes and, you know, we could have our Anders meeting, like, I'm all for it. Yeah. I, I think it looks really cool, though, compared to what it was. Like, if you can see how if you chart that to its natural conclusion in like five, ten years or whatever, it's like, oh, that's really cool. If you can generate that from sort of like what's already built into a laptop or something. Or, yeah, I mean, a good stopgap, because I was noticing that it had the stereoscopic cameras on top, mm -hmm. which like basically like any stereoscopic cameras you see, including the real sense, they're all, they're all basically connects. Yeah. Like it, it all like just trickled down from that connect technology. And yeah. It, and the image, it looks like you just have three connects around the screen in like the one that Google provided. Yeah. But you could see like, you sell me one of those for like 200 bucks and I put that on a TV. Like that's a totally reasonable experience, I think. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Brian, thanks very much. I mean, we covered a, a tiny, tiny fraction of what is on yeah. there. So please go read all the rest of the coverage. We have a roundup linking out to all of it and running down the announcements. And I'm sure more will trickle out over the next couple of days as everybody digests what happened there. But really glad you could join us, Brian, and, you know, go back to, I don't know, scaring Googlers or making them feel uncertain about the value of their accomplishments. <laughs> Here are the stories bubbling to the top of tech's collective consciousness this week. Peloton has recalled its OG exercise bike due to an issue with the seat post. 
The company has received over two dozen reports of the fault causing breakage, and some incidents have resulted in injuries. Because this is the original Peloton bike that made the company famous, there's a very large number of units involved. 2.2 million to be exact. More on this from Kyle Wiggers on TechCrunch. Shopify announced major layoffs this week, cutting 20% of its headcount globally. As part of those layoffs, it also sold off a couple of the businesses it had either acquired or built, including its entire logistics division. The logistics business, which included shipping and warehousing for its merchants, is being sold to Flexport in exchange for equity. You can read more about this from Paul Soares on TC, and also be sure to check out my article about how all the communication around these cuts were handled very poorly by Shopify and its leadership. We spoke to Brian about I.O. this episode, but we really only scratched the surface of the coverage on the site. We didn't talk about the company's new folding Pixel phone, for instance, or half of the AI announcements Google made. So go check out all of that on TC. Speaking of AI, IBM clearly wants to insert itself into that conversation. The company created the now infamous Watson a few years ago, a project that ended up going very poorly and kind of sullying the name of AI overall. IBM is back clawing for relevance, though, and unveiled a range of generative AI products, including new models to compete with the likes of GPT-4. Check out more from Kyle Wiggers on TechCrunch. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. You can read all of the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and review. As always, don't miss the other TC podcasts. We have Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development. And Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.